Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan, the author of How to Be a Grown-Up and The Sisterhood. My debut novel, Insatiable, is coming in February and there's a limited signed edition available to pre-order from Waterstones for your book listeners. Also, as you know, on this podcast, we love our indie bookshops. If you'd like to pre-order from your local, it would make my day. I'm going to try an experiment. If you ask your favourite local bookshop to order you a copy and then ask them to tweet at YBook to tell me, I will try to send you something special to go with your book. It might be a cover-coordinating chocolate orange, unless the next 2020 British panic purchase is the chocolate orange. Also, I know that a lot of you have been enjoying producer Dale's very, very funny Twitter haikus. If you're not familiar, his Twitter handle is PG Woodhouse themed. He's at Monty Bogdan. You will love his book, Painfully British Haikus. And it's even funnier when you buy it from lovely independent bookshops. Now, all our guests are favourites of mine, but oh, this is one of my favourite favourites. Today we have the prolific writer Louise O'Neill, a beacon of fierceness, funniness and feminism. Her latest book, After the Silence, is her best book to date, and that's saying something, according to none other than Marion Keyes. It's about an unsolved murder. It's a super smart thriller with real humanity and depth at its heart. We talked about Louise's life in New York, Ferris Ghosts and Catholics, why everyone in the world needs to read Belinda McCowan, and why little Louise got into trouble for being a book addict. We've had an interesting time the last six months have your reading habits changed at all did you find that you were reading reaching for comfort reads or radically different things about plagues that's interesting you know it was funny when it when when it first happened you know like when lockdown was first called um in march or i suppose really when the severity of the situation became pretty clear. I felt as if my brain was broken and I think that's the only way that I can describe it. You know, I I couldn't write, I couldn't watch television. You know, I think everyone kept recommending that I watch, you know, Tiger King and I, I noticed that I would manage to sort of focus for about like 10 minutes and then I would just, I would have to turn it off. Um, and for me, I think most unusually, I, I really struggled to read. Um, and I think that if you're someone who has always loved reading, who has always turned to books, um, you know, for for comfort and for escape and for 
uh, I don't know, for solace, I think it was a, it was the first time in my entire life where I hadn't been able to do that. So I, I think there was about a month where I just didn't read anything. And then actually what was really helpful was that I put something on my Instagram stories where I was asking people for their recommendations of like their favorite romantic sexy novels and some of the like responses were so funny like I was like I want a hot book I want hot sex I want to be like really horny after reading this and someone recommended Jane Eyre (laughs) I was like um maybe not for me like I you know maybe not quite what I'm I, I think I need something a bit more explicit here hell of an insight into that person though yeah <laughs> yeah and actually it really broke it because I think that I read about uh three or four kind of in a row um and you know I think then it, because maybe they weren't too taxing and because it felt really just enjoyable um and I wasn't putting I don't know, not that I was putting pressure on myself, but I was really just saying, I'm just doing this for fun. And and that I think broke the reading slump because as soon as I started to, because it's like anything, you know, as soon as I started to read, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm able to do this again, you know. But I love how you intuited that that was what would break your duck. Like, horn, I need horn. So tell me about these sexy books. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that there's definitely been times in my life where, like I know when I, I studied English um, at uh, university, that was actually quite an interesting experience as well because that was maybe the first time that I felt quite resistant towards reading in a way because it felt as if it was very much tied up in academia um, and having to analyse the book in a certain way rather than just reading for um, enjoyment. And actually what I found helped me then, which is so funny looking back, was I started rereading like old Sweet Valley Highs, you know, like the, which are like the worst books that have ever been written. Um, but I think, again, it's that sense of a book that is, and when I say not taxing, I think that in a way it's sort of similar that when I was a student, you know, you're reading a book and analysing it. Um, and I think sometimes as a writer, you're reading a book and you're sort of subconsciously analysing how the writer has has done this or the way that they've structured the book or the way that they've uh, achieved something or you know so I think it's sometimes it maybe isn't quite as relaxing as the way that when you read a book well the way I read a book when I was um, a child was just this complete and utter absorption you know that my parents would be saying Louise 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 and like I genuinely I just wouldn't be able to to hear them and I actually think it's quite rare now particularly I suppose there's so many things that are you know demanding our attention but you know definitely smartphones I think are probably the the worst culprit there it's it's a little bit more rare to have that complete and utter just engrossed in a book that you can block out the outside world so can you remember what some of those books were like what books where you nearly injured yourself because you couldn't just come out and look up or books where you just have no idea what was happening at that point in your life because you were in there well I would say Ina Blyton was a big one um and you know it's, it's interesting I like I don't really remember I mean obviously I don't remember but I, I like I, I I was asking my mother recently like what picture books did I like and you know she couldn't seem to remember exactly but I know by the time I was a child um and like Ina Blyton whether that was 
the boarding school stories um, and I was I preferred St. Clair's or whether it was like the mysteries and I preferred Secret Seven and I know those are two actually quite controversial opinions because they really are St. Clair's what <laughs> I know show you're working Sell it to me. <laughs> yes, I think those were the books that I, I was really drawn to. And I loved like the magic faraway tree. Like I loved this idea of this magical tree in the, in the middle of the forest. And that, that there would, every time you climbed it, that there would be this completely different land um, at the top. And we, we used, I used to walk to school um, and I would read my book while I was walking to school. Um, so I have no idea why how I wasn't in like a major car accident. Um, <laughs> it's a miracle that I'm alive and I remember my mother my teacher called her once and my parents were so shocked because you know I think they just hadn't they just couldn't they'd never been called to the school with my older sister and they couldn't imagine you know what the teacher would want to to say to them so they they went up and the teacher said look you know we have to talk about Louise all she does is read she reads um, in, at lunchtime rather than playing with the other children. When I'm teaching her, she's under the desk reading while we're supposed to be doing maths. Um, and like my parents would have said, even at nighttime, you know, it was like when they turn off the light, I'd ask for them to leave like a crack of the door open because I said I was scared of the dark, but it was really so that I could sneak in and like read my book in this like two inch chink of light, like moving the book up and down. Um, and when we were bold, like when we were um, naughty, um, our punishment would be that we couldn't read for like two weeks, which is so funny because I think most parents are really trying to encourage their, <laughs> their children to read more. And my parents were like, Jesus, these two nerds we have here don't know what we're going to do with them. I, do, I love that, that obviously re- reading during maths is very understandable, but also that playing with, with the other children no no thank you I've got all the friends I need right here I, know. I still have a really sharp and sort of visceral memory of um the end of the magic faraway tree and the damage that is done to the roots of the tree and the peril they're in and like the pure pure grief and fear I felt like being just absolutely inconsolable having no and even though I I knew it wasn't real still really felt utterly overwhelmed. I think that was one of the first times I remember that there could be a story with that much peril in it and there might not be a happy ending. You know, it's funny there when you said I knew it wasn't real because I think there was a part of me that maybe, like, I really believed in magic and I do think it's partly maybe having grown up Catholic where you're sort of encouraged to believe in a kind of magic, you know, in transubstantiation every Sunday you know that the the host is being transformed into the body of Christ and all of these things and and that Jesus you know came back from the dead and so I I think there's a there was a part of me and and as well I suppose like a lot of you know Irish mythology where my parents wouldn't have necessarily been into that but like you know my grandparents owned a farm um and there would have been a fairy fort um on the farm and you know my granddad would have been very much like you can't knock this down or disturb this because and I don't even think they really believed in it but I think there was just this sense of better to be careful do you know Mm. Um, so I think because of all of those things I think there was a part of me that really did did believe that this was real and did believe in magic and believed in fairies um and you know it's, it's interesting even as an adult because 
I am qu- I'm quite drawn to a lot of like new age philosophy and so and you know a lot of that is is angels and 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 being in touch with the universe and this you know ability to manifest you know a certain and in a way I think it's a part of me that just wants to still believe in the magic that I read you know in books like the magic faraway tree that makes a lot of sense and I am right with you on um you know grew up in England but in a very uh, practicing Catholic family and you go and you hear there was a um, a Latin mass that we go to every Sunday oh wow Latin when you're hearing those words and obviously you know when you're a reader and you're sort of precocious enough to want to read or understand and there's a bit of a just you know get on with it and you can I suppose figure out little bits of Latin if you know enough of the English but Still, yeah, there's so much in the world that is presented to you that makes no sense and does seem magical. And then you throw yourself into enough of those universes. Joyce Lancaster Brisley, I think, who wrote the Millie Molly Mandy books, she wrote a story. But it's about, it's I think, for slightly older readers or it's a slightly older girl. And it's about um, a young girl who I think goes to live with her godmother. And there's this scene at the beginning where she's shown to her bedroom and it's some kind of fairy bower. And in my memory, as like a washstand comes up from the ground and it's made of, you know, moss and marble and sunlight and birch. And I don't know, but things like that. I was really like, well, if I, if I wished hard enough... I could have yes, one of those. Yes. And that was the thing was like, if you, it was, I suppose that sense of like, if I really believe in this enough and honestly, in a way, like it's a terrible thing to, to sell a child in the same way that I suppose you could argue that a lot of things like the secret, you know, and things like that are actually quite dangerous things to sell adults, because I think it is that sense of, we all want to feel as if we have control over our lives and actually I think that if this year has been anything it has been a uncomfortable but maybe necessary lesson in surrender um, and in just realizing that I can't control everything um, and that I have to let go of a lot of that um, and just I don't know kind of give in to what's happening. I think you're right. I was just thinking as well, it's weird how often the secret comes up on this podcast. But it just, when I decided I wanted to um, start a book podcast, I was not prepared for that. But I've, um, I I have read it and I know it's nonsense. And yet. Actually, what I find really, I read a really interesting article about it recently, where they were talking about how that the secret, um, they were really just saying it's almost at the root of um, America's ills right now because of this idea of I suppose that it that you shouldn't care about other people's problems because it's about focusing on the good and ignoring the negative um, and I think I suppose so much of that is tied up in the idea of the American dream so that if you're not wealthy if you're not in a loving relationship if you're not you know at your perfect weight or or, or at perfect health that I suppose there's almost like a sense of blame rather than looking at you know institutionalized uh, racism or or um the way in which uh, you know systemic racism or the way in which i suppose society is structured to benefit the privileged um and it's just really fascinating i suppose to see how something like the secret might have almost played into a trumpian society it was quite um yeah. it was quite unnerving actually one of the things I was thinking about was how overwhelmingly white my bookshelves have been and how I've been making a real effort to 
address that and change it and read a much sort of wider variety of, of authors and how that has led me to some books that have will stay with me forever and books that have been you know a really wonderful thing to happen in a terrible year have you been at any point decided that you wanted to to read differently and then discovered something really exciting I think that's such a great question um and you know it's interesting because I think that I would say maybe 10 years ago I probably made quite a conscious decision that I was going to read more female writers and and you know this is often something that when you say people can get very annoyed about it um, and when I say people I mean men <laughs> um, and um, they they're people too Daisy um, <laughs> and uh, I think a lot of it is you know this idea of well you know you shouldn't just choose a book um, because of the gender of the author and you know it was death to the author you know that that theory and but I think the problem is is that if you've gone through a traditional education system um, if you look at like the literary canon like that's very much weighted in favor of white straight men so I think that it was almost like a process of unlearning in a way um, and I think particularly as a woman when you realize this was how much there's a lot of internalized misogyny where that often to say that you enjoy reading a female author, you know, who writes primarily about, uh, you know, issues that impact women and women's lives, that that is sort of dismissed. And actually I can think of a perfect example. I was, um, I was doing a Jane Austen module in my final year at university um, and it was a room full of women. Um, I think there was maybe one uh, guy there and, and the teacher was male. Um, and he, he spoke about that he had been invited to talk on this, I think he said it was ITV, but I can't remember now. Like it was a television program anyway, um, where they talked about Jane Austen um, and her legacy. And then they were, um, I think there was a panel and they were asked to read contemporary female authors. And I suppose to give their judgment on who they thought was the rightful heir to Jane Austen. And he said, oh, you know, I, th I thought most of them were kind of rubbish. And then he said, but one of them I thought was very good. And he said, <laughs> still makes me laugh. He was like, I'm not sure if any of you have heard of her. Um, it's Marion Keys. Oh and the entire room, the entire room just kind of exploded. Of I think like one person at the back said, "Oh, I actually I love Marion Keys," and then everybody else was like, "Yeah, no, I love Marion Keys too." But I think it was almost like we were embarrassed to say, you know, like I think that we nearly had to have been given permission. Um, and I think so much of that is internalized misogyny that you know the the what we think is important you know is is men talking about men's issues and I think that you know like for so long if you if you looked at you know let's say the books that won the major prizes most of the time it was male authors and a female author, authors won um like the statistics showed that they tended to have male protagonists so I think for me it was like this process of like unlearning and wanting to center women and women's voices um and to kind of learn to not be ashamed about that um so and I think then over the last number of years probably like the last three or four years I think that it was more of a sense of okay well now I need to be reading more authors of color now I need to make sure that I am reading you know um, books by by queer authors and it's been really wonderful actually because I think that 
you know, I'm, I'm off Twitter. I just couldn't bear the negative, you know, just it was such a toxic um, environment. You know, I think one of the things that I really loved about Twitter was this sense of, you know, I am a white middle class woman who was brought up in a very small town in West Cork, surrounded by people who looked exactly the same as I do. Um, and I think that it was really wonderful it was that was what I thought was so brilliant about Twitter at the beginning was I think ex this exposure to other people's voices and other people's experience and I learned so much about about race and gender and sexuality and and fat shaming and body positivity and and I think just ideas that I wouldn't have been I just wouldn't have I suppose stumbled across you know living in quite you know in a small Particularly, I mean, now it's different because the internet makes those ideas so much easier to, to disseminate. And I think that in a way, like, that's what reading is offering me now in, a, in an even more immersive way. Because, you know, I think when you're when you're reading a book, you're, you know, you're devoting, I don't know, five, six hours or whatever, however long the book is to this character, to this world. There are two things there, aren't there? Because I was thinking, I just love this idea. Have you heard of this little known writer called Mary? Yeah. <laughs> I don't suppose you girls would. And how I felt so seen by those books in a way that, you know, nothing had. To, and it's this idea they were sort of, for adults, because I guess I was, you know, a teen or a preteen, I think, when I first um, found them. But they felt more for me than anything I'd known. And it was sort of the comfort of them and the being uplifted and I think in any book where you have all of these people living very 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 different lives what I love about books and made-up characters and people being flawed and making mistakes and sometimes being unkind and just you know being being complex you don't see any of that on Twitter Twitter is the yes. worst at the moment certainly there is there's no humanity there there's no dimension I mean especially about social media like it does not offer any sort of ability I think to be nuanced and I think actually that's where you know when you were asking about let's say books by people who are very different to me and and how that has broadened my experience I actually think what has been quite interesting is that you know as a child I, you know, we read Roll, um, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, um, you know, in school. And I think, you know, which is set in Mississippi, I think it's in the 1960s um, uh, or 1950s, 1940s. I don't know. It's a long time since I read it. Um, and uh, but, you know, I think what was what was interesting about that is that, you know, it's very like I remember being so horrified and shocked at this, you know, um, like how could people be so racist and how could they treat other human beings with like such a lack of respect and actually I think that as an adult what has been really interesting is reading let's say a book like Americana um by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie or Such a Fun Age um by Kylie Reid where actually the racism isn't you know the KKK or or people using the n-word um you know because I think that's so easy as a white person to say well I would never do that whereas actually I think the experience of reading a book those kind of books which have these depictions of you know the night the nice white yeah. person you know who's yeah. really ultimately quite clueless like there's such a level of discomfort actually reading that because you feel it's like I remember sometimes some of the scenes particularly in, in such a fun age with um Alex I just would have a full body cringe um, and I think it's quite confronting actually um, but I think really important to understand I suppose that 
that so often that it's the the microaggressions or the the unintentional I suppose off the cuff comments that you might make that actually can cause as well so brilliantly brilliantly captured and just so like got thinking about it now and that uh, oh I can again it's that you know oh I feel really nice when I recognize myself in a Marion Keys book but I see myself in Kylie Reid's novel and that feels horrible and actually you know again the internet has been really useful for something like that because even with something like the film Green Book and I remember like seeing the trailer for it and going god this looks amazing and then seeing a lot of commentary around it um, from people of colour and from black people, I think really explaining the issues that they found with it. And I thought, oh, this is really helpful, actually, to, I suppose, because I think as a white person, you're so used to your perspective and your point of view being centred all the time. Um, and... I think it's really important um, to have that kind of removed. And I think that, you know, and that's why I suppose reading is such a wonderful way of doing that, because then you're you're not seeing the world through your perspective. Actually, you're seeing you're a reflection of yourself as seen through the eyes um, of a person of colour. And that's not the most comfortable thing, but I think it's really necessary. I have just read Any Human Heart by William Boyd, which is interesting in terms of that sort of very, very male narrative. And uh, I loved it. I truly loved it. Um, I was thinking about the way that women show up in that book and how much paid sex there is and how normalised that is. And I suppose that's a great example of a character who is so lovable and hateable. Do you think, though, and this is such a like an old, like quite kind of boring question at this point, but... I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I, I, you know, even as you were talking, I was thinking, yes, but it's a male character. And, uh, you know, and I think that we allow them to be flawed in ways that we don't with women. And it's funny, like, because after Almost Love, which was my last adult novel before um, the current one, you know, there was so just all I was answering in... Um, in interviews was about the unlikable female character but I was so bored of it by the end that I said I am going to set out now and I'm going to make you know she's going to be complicated but she's going to be likable I can't go through this again um and it's been interesting because I have had a few comments about the main character in After the Silence um people saying oh I was very frustrated with her I didn't understand why she stayed with Henry and I, I was actually so shocked by it because obviously there's a there's a theme of um, domestic violence in the book. And I think it just really highlights, I don't know, the double standard yeah. that I have for men and women, yeah. both in fiction and in real life, that even in a situation like this where you have someone who is clearly in a controlling relationship, that people weren't commenting going, God, he's a bit of a dick, that it was well, why doesn't she leave? And it was just such an eerie echoing of the language people use around real life um, victims of domestic violence. And I just, I do think, I suppose, that men, both in life and in fiction, are allowed to be the anti-hero in ways that women are I think aren't. you're right. And I think, in a weird way, it comes back to the secret where we want people to have agency but the narrative that like this is entirely your responsibility and your fault is a really, really dangerous one. And I think as well, it's interesting when we talk about this idea that now, like the strong woman, and it's very fashionable to be a strong woman and how 
a lot of the time when we say that, we are thinking about strength in a sort of a toxic masculine way. I think I've talked about this in the podcast before, but I don't know if you know that book. Uh, Tender by Belinda McCown. Oh, my God. Yes. I have such a good story about that book. Actually. Oh, brilliant. You can go first. But that she is throughout doing something that you know is doomed. You know, having a bad affair with someone who will never, ever love her as she wants and deserves to be loved. And she does become quite irritating and frustrating. And you do feel a bit like, come on, have some self-respect. But she still remains someone that I liked and loved and warmed to and cared about. And I wanted her to be okay. And I understood why she was doing all of those stupid things. And it's I think that we're more able to cope I think with people's complexity in real life I think because we can understand that no one's perfect and that people but I think sometimes in fiction people want female characters in particular to be slightly flattened out and the edges to kind of be smoothed down um and I think with Tender was it Kate was Kate the main character's name I can't think now. I because re- I remember I read it in Italy and I was there by myself for a month in 2015 and I read it on like the steps of some Duomo and it I just absolutely adored it and actually I think it was really interesting to see a lot of the reviews or a lot of the reaction to it was so much was so focused on the on you know the idea that the main character was um was unlikable but I absolutely adore Belinda McKeown's work and actually the story that I had was about her first novel um which is called Solace not um, Tender but um so when I was working in New York um I was working at Elle magazine and I was working in the fashion department and when you would there was it was kind of almost like a square and you'd walk around it and then there was the the department that was obviously doing the the literary reviews and they would just be it was the first time I'd ever seen a proof and um, I I'd never I I had no idea what a proof was before that point you know and so it was the first time I'd, they used to have stacks of them um and you could take them and I was the only person and I'm not joking I was literally the only person I would go home with like stacks of them under my arms and I didn't have a smartphone so you know and, and it was like a 45 commute uh, on the subway so I, I used to just read constantly and I found um, Belinda's, the proof copy of Solace in, uh, just on the thing. And I remember um, like on the stack and I brought it home and I read it and I absolutely, like I fell in love with it. And I found this old email this year, actually, I found this old email that I had written to my boyfriend at the time, just saying, I found this book by this Irish author and she went to Trinity, which is where I went and and you know I said she's living in New York now and I said this book is so incredible and I said I just think you know I, I, I really want to write but I, I don't think I'll ever be able to create something as as good as this and and it was just because Belinda is someone that I'm friends with now oh, wow. so it's just so funny oh, wow. yeah just to see you know like she I think she had won the newcomer of the year that 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 same year and then I ended up winning it like maybe three or four years later and it was just this really interesting portal into this other time where I had such desires to write and and that I was looking at this author who was a you know a young Irish woman and 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 feeling envious you know and thinking god I really wish that I could do that and 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 just being so blown away by that book because you know it's set on an Irish farm my mother's parents who I was very close to we would have spent every weekend and sort of most of the summer holidays with them 
uh, had a farm. So it was just, it was a, such a familiar, it was just such a familiar setting and, and people and, and the relationships that were depicted. And I suppose as well, there was a power in reading that and thinking, you know, in New York and thinking there was value in my own experiences. And I think sometimes as a human being, that's why reading is so powerful because we all often we can feel so alone and I think that when you read a book and you see a, a thought that you've had or an experience or, or just echoed in the pages there is this sense of oh I'm not alone you know or of being seen in a way that I think is so healing actually and I love that that happened and you were there I'm assuming their office is sort of somewhere in Manhattan it was the time in life building so it was I think on the, we were on the 52nd floor um the Lehman Brothers, like offices, empty offices were sort of below us. And uh, so, yeah, I think it was a very surreal moment to picked up this book because there was there were worlds apart, you know, that idea of, of Ireland and home and the farm and then my life in New York, what that was kind of entailing and to, to see them meet in that way was was really special. So I sent Belinda, I actually sent Belinda the email and she thought she was like, this is so funny. <laughs> It sounds like you were haunting the proof pile. Yeah, I, oh, I was. I was. Everyone else was like hanging outside the beauty department wanting free makeup. <laughs> I was just there with stacks of books. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We'll be back to Louise soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, The Secret Countess by Eva Ibbotson. Some of Eva's books have recently been reissued by Pan Macmillan. Sarah Manning, a friend of YB, is a huge fan and has written the introduction for one of the books. The Secret Countess is the story of Anna, whose grand wealthy family have fled Russia during the revolution. They find themselves penniless in London. Resourceful Anna gets a job as a maid at Mersham, an enormous country house, and she's working for the family of the Earl of Westerholm. 
of this book is a cure for every single 2020 feeling I've had. It's lavish, it's sumptuous, it's fun. It's proof that you can have characters who are gorgeously kind and lovable without being irritating. It's irreverent, it's weirdly, darkly funny, it's immensely satisfying and it has priceless sapphires, a cream-filled giant meringue swan and a fabulous subplot about some hotly anticipated dog poo. Reading Eva Ibbotson feels better than drinking champagne, than coming in from the cold on a rainy day and then waiting for your pizza to arrive and hearing the ring of the doorbell. The Secret Countess by Eva Ibbotson is published by Pam Macmillan. It's out now. Now, back to Louise. So how did you end up um, on the fashion desk? And um, how did you get oh, out of the fashion desk? Um, well, God, I don't know. But um, I, you know, I had, I obviously had done my undergrad in English. Um, and then I did a postgraduate in fashion buying. A friend of mine in um, during that year had said, you know, there's this visa that you can do. Um, that it's a, a J visa um, where you it has to be sort of the year after you graduate college and that you can go and live in America for a year um, and you have to intern. Um, that's kind of part, you know, the, that's what the um, the visa is based on. And I thought, oh, this sounds like a really amazing opportunity to go to a city that I really love um, and spend a year there. And I started applying to like every fashion magazine that I could think of because I really wanted to work in, in magazines. And it's so funny, like I remember thinking I'm going to write handwritten letters because that'll really, you know, differentiate me from everybody else. Um, and I never got any reply except for one in Glamour, uh, who was this really lovely, lovely young woman. Um, and she said, look, we can't hire you here because I think Condé Nast had been sued for having unpaid interns like a year previous. So she said, unless you can get college credit, we can't have you. But she said, my old boss at L is looking for people. And then she said, have you ever heard of Kate Lanfear? And I, I had pictures of Kate Lanfear on my wall at home. Like it was so weird. It was just one of these really strange, uh, I don't know, um, seren- serendipity of some, of some kind. But I remember like the first week at L, they, <laughs> when they knew I was from Ireland, they said, oh my God, we got this really weird letter, like a handwritten letter from someone. And I was, oh my God. And I just, and I went bright red. And I remember my friend Angela said, that it wasn't you, was it? And I was like, no, of course not. I mean, who would do such a thing? And they were like, yeah, my God, it was so embarrassing. We just had to throw it in the bin before. And I was like, okay. I remember it was not anywhere near as glamorous as um l in new york it was a bliss magazine in kent in tunbridge wells well i'm sorry no 15 year old me thinks bliss is very glam so <laughs> i think why well, i was hired because i you know mentally i'm it's like mariah carey um stopping at 12 <laughs> i think i was um i was 23 going on 15 but i was the intern and then i i hired the interns or i booked the interns and you and it's awful how how quickly one becomes cynical and sort of seeing how hard people are trying, and you know, like it's next factor audition every day, and think, but I really just need you to sit quietly know, and transcribe this interview. Um, I remember speaking of the Devil Wears Prada when someone that I knew at L had emailed me. She was not my direct boss, but my um, or my boss's assistant. So she emailed me saying, you know, there's a job at Harper's Bazaar, and you know, I think you'd be really good for it. Will I will I put you up? And I emailed back and said no you know what I've decided to stay at home I'm 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 writing a novel 
And it was so funny because she didn't reply for ages and then she replied and you could just tell, like she could tell she was quite anxious and it was like, oh, a novel. Is it like, you know, the devil wears Prada and I had to like be really, you know, sort of reassuring and say, no, no, it's not set in the fashion industry, I promise, you know. It's just set in a dystopian world where women starve themselves to uh, please the male gaze. But no, nothing to do with fashion. Don't worry. <laughs> Ever so slightly inspired by, but not so you'd recognise that. <laughs> I'm trying to think about um, other novels, um, books about um, jobs and jobs that sound amazing and jobs that sound awful. And I was always very taken with the um, the different jobs that all of the, the women have in The Girls of Slender Means. So Muriel's book, and it's a, a weird book, but um, she really captures that sense of being in your 20s and being ambitious, but there really being no room for any of that ambition and just sort of hoping things will turn up and kind of the strange like restless fractious energy that doesn't have anywhere to go do you ever do you ever find that with just when you said Muriel Spark there I thought oh that's another one of the authors that is on my list that is one of those people that I haven't read any of I haven't read any of her work and is one of those people that I think I really must read this person and Anne Tyler is another one of those and but actually one person who was on my list and I read the first my first one of her books at Christmas and then binged like five of them in a row was um Anne Patchett. Oh, and sure. oh really? That's so spooky because I did I've had the proof of uh the Dutch house and I had it for like over a year and it had such a sort of imposing, impressive cover and I really thought, oh, I think this is gonna be quite like heavy and literary and dry and everyone's raving about it and I feel such a sense of duty and obligation this book and eventually (laughs) I was like look I have to read it or give it away come on and I loved it I really loved it and I'm just about to start reading um is it Bel Canto? Oh yes that is very good like it really again quite a um do you know even just the concept of it isn't exactly what you would think of as a quote-unquote like literary novel do you know that they're like she's quite she's quite plot driven do you know um like you know even in the in the dutch house and commonwealth um and there's another book and i'm trying to remember what it's called and it's like it's in the amazon like it's um it's about medical experiments um in the amazon i'm trying to think do you do you, do you remember the the title of it i be- i haven't read it but i believe that comes up in big magic you yes. had this and yes, that's the has. book that Elizabeth Gilbert is trying to write yeah it's so strange that that seems catholic to me that's yeah. some sort of like yes. literary transubstantiation yes exactly I am gonna get struck down or um what's the thing that happened to Madonna drummed out of the catholic brownies um oh uh, excommunicated yeah 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 um I'm trying sorry I, I'm trying to think what the name of it is here um because I oh state of wonder um, I have, because I'm so bad at remembering books, I've actually this year have started writing a list of the books that I've read just so that I can kind of um, prompt my memory. But it's, re- it's, it's, a, it's really good. Um, and, but it was fascinating because I read Big Magic. Liz Gilbert was talking about how 
if you have an idea, like the universe gives you an idea and that you have to run with it and you have to respect the fact that they've given you this idea and that, that there's a limited, I suppose, window of time to develop this idea and work on it. So she has done all of the work on it um, and then gets distracted. And then by the time she comes back to it, the energy is not there and she starts another project. And then she meets um, Anne Patchett at, at an event and Anne Patchett is telling her about her new book state of wonder and there's these like it's actually quite spooky actually i think because there because because it's such a specific type of book like the plot is very specific so it's not something like oh you know my character meets an older man and they have an affair you're like okay and it's well, not just anybody, that it's you know? set in south america it's the geography and like the industry they're in and exactly um and um so she thinks that they they hugged on an event and she thinks that she sort of transferred um, the idea over to uh, Anne Patchett, um, which is the kind of thing that when writers talk about that people who aren't writers say, OK, crazy talk here again. Um, but I think there's something about creativity um, that does, I don't know, I suppose it does allow you to believe in the magic of sort because when you have created something out of nothing you know when you have sat at your computer and looked at a blank page and have made a world and have made characters to populate it and and, and have developed a story and then all of a sudden it's a book and you have no idea like you take that leap of faith and you you know you hope the net will appear I think that when you do that there is a part of you that has to believe in magic because the 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 act of creativity is so just impossible to explain, impossible to define. When it's going well, sometimes it can feel as if you're, di- you know, like you're dictating, like someone's, you're taking dictation that you're, that you're almost channeling it in some sort of strange way. Um, so I think that when you, when you hear about something like that, as far fetched as it sounds, there's a part of you that. I don't know, feels like it's as good as a good as a reason or an explanation as any because it's so difficult to define creativity itself. Where does any idea come from? So I have just read uh, Dolly Alderton's debut novel, Ghosts, which is coming out um, next October. It is excellent. And she has just read mine, Insatiable, which is coming out in February. Um, it's also excellent. <laughs> there are lines in both books that are weirdly similar. My heroine, Violet, says something like, I wish I had a condom for my heart. And then Nina, Dolly's heroine, says of her um, best friend, I wish I could give her a condom for her heart. And Dolly sent me a WhatsApp saying, I know this looks bad. <laughs> you say that your book comes out first (laughs) I know I know and others and we're both very aware of I think having lots of friends who write and obviously part of it is as well we're of a similar experience and generation and there will be things that we've just absorbed and internalized and you know dumb jokes and tv shows and weird like news things and everything that's you know that shape people there's going to be a lot of that sort of commonality in the air. Oh, 100%. And I think if you gave the same idea to 10 people, they would write it in 10 entirely different ways. And I think, you know, a lot of it as well, I think, is this idea of collective consciousness. And we are all, as you say, consuming the same media. But often I think we're connected to each other in ways that we don't even really understand. And I also think, like, I remember um, when Lucy Foley's proof of her new novel 
uh, was sent to me and I actually got such a fright when I heard the blurb because it was so similar to mine in that it was an island, a wild party, a storm and then a body is found um, the next day. And I was like, oh, Jesus. And especially is that thing of hers is coming out in February and mine is coming out in September, you know, Christ. Um, But I think then when you look at it, like there's such different books, you know, that like hers is like an Agatha Christie style um, murder mystery. And it's very much like a closed room narrative, but also entirely focused on like that event and you know the kind of almost like a weekend whereas mine is you know like 10 years later um you know after this murder has happened that this true crime uh docu- uh podcast um is being made about the murder um and it's much more i think i suppose to do with the trauma and the the grief and um and the way in which uh this very small tightly knit community have been torn apart by that so i think it's even though an idea might sound ostensibly almost identical, that the way in which two writers who have very different sensibilities and styles and also different themes or motifs that interest them or what they're working out in, you know, on the page, um, and those will result in totally different novels. I'd love to um, have a go at rewriting Carrie. Oh, that would be amazing. But obviously, I love Carrie. I think it's a you know, fantastic book, but something like maybe, maybe first person with a lot less of a focus on the telekinesis and just about her isolation and vulnerability and her relationship with her mother. Oh, you have to write this. This is going to be your next YA novel, like your YA debut. It's going to be this now. Oh, that well, I can get um, permission from the estate. <laughs> yeah, mm. it might be easier. Yeah, to choose an older book. <laughs> but we had uh, Curtis Sittenfeld on the podcast, and she was talking about eligible, which I didn't know this, but I think she was approached with that idea. And obviously, the great thing about that is, it's sort of, I think. I'm assuming it's out of copyright. I'd have to check that. But in terms of oh, the, it definitely is. the estate yeah. and how that works, it's got to be much easier. But also, once the what is down and established, and you can just work out the why. Because you've um, written um, a retelling of The Little Mermaid. I was just going to say there, firstly, that the best Austen adaptation is Clueless. And I will fight anyone um, who disagrees with that. It's so funny. The, or the first time I, I saw Clueless, I had read Emma maybe a year before um and I kept thinking god this is so like Emma and you know what I suppose when you're that age you think it's like an, an original thought that you've had because you you're not on the internet so you you're not reading articles about it. Elton and then Mr Elton I mean what kind of crazy coincidence is that I know it took me I'd say I was like 20 before someone you know said oh that was a read and I was like oh my god it all makes sense now um, yeah, so I, I, yeah, the, the Surface Breaks, which was my fourth novel, um, was a feminist retelling of The Little Mermaid. And actually it was, it was a really interesting experience because like I had, you know, at the start, this was my publisher, um, my editor had given me a lot of freedom and saying, you know, you can interpret this or reinterpret this in whatever way you want. And I actually think I made a decision to hew more closely to the original story because, while you know updating it and and um, I suppose making it my own because I think that an issue with a lot of these fairy tales is that people don't realize how dark you know particularly the original versions are because the memories that they have are maybe of the Disney uh version and you know that kind of very 
clean cut whitewashed uh, reinterpretation and I think that for me it was like wanting to show that so often the stories that we tell our children we we tell them without really consciously thinking about those stories or the messages that that the children are going to internalize as a result because they're seen as classics um or because they're seen as you know well I read them when I was a child and my mother read them when you know when she was a child and a lot of the time there's quite harmful messages I think um in in fairy tales so it was trying to I suppose highlight those in a way I really enjoyed it I think actually what I enjoyed is that you know at the moment I'm I'm work. I've just started work on a new project and it's trying to like it's really exhausting at the beginning because you're trying to figure out who these characters are and you're trying to make sense of the world and you're trying to almost find your feet in it and that is actually I think quite mentally draining um I, you know I swear you'd swear I was down a mine but like it, you know it, it can be quite draining um and I think that what I what I loved about the retelling was that you have I suppose a certain outline you know I knew okay there's, it's going to be her 15th birthday she's going to meet the sea witch you know the, she's going to go take the potion go to land so there were these I suppose plot points that I wanted to hit um, and then I was allowed, or I suppose I, I, you know, gave myself permission to really experiment and, um, and I suppose enjoy the process in between. Um, but I imagine it would be like if you're writing a series, you know, in a way that like the first book and then by the second book, you're kind of, you're, you're hitting the ground running because you have this world set up and you know who these characters you're are. You're not using that all that energy thinking, well, how would this, yeah. you sort of know, you get to know someone well enough to know how they're going to react in a given situation. And I think that's, when you've got no constraints or say boundaries, it's so, it's so bad, no boundaries, it's so hard to know what it is that you're establishing. Do you feel it out as you write or do you start by kind of, just asking yourself questions and, and making notes. I think with the first book, with Only Ever Yours, um, I probably just sat down and started writing. Um, but definitely since then, I have tried to really have a very strong sense of the characters and who they are. Um, because as you said, it does make that a little bit easier as the book continues when you have an understanding of their motivations, why they behave the way that they do. Uh, how they would behave under certain circumstances you know all of those things so I do I think more planning now actually the more books I write I think the the easier I, I find it to do the planning at this end because otherwise I think sometimes you can hit roadblocks midway through and you're you're trying to figure it out I mean with after the silence which is the the new one I think that w- I probably have never done as much research and as much planning I did around six months um, and that would be very unusual um, for me but just you know I wanted to talk to people who grew up on islands off the coast of Ireland and get a sense of that and um, it deals with coercive control so I was doing a lot of research talking to survivors and just things like you know, there's an unsolved mi- a murder um, at the heart of it and talking to policemen and talking to an investigative journalist and I even talked to the state pathologist, the former state pathologist, because I really just wanted to say, would this happen? How, like, if this happened, what would what would the next step be? Um, and it was a lot of work, but I think that, I mean, hopefully, you know, it paid off in the end. I'm so excited to read it. I can't wait. I can imagine if, be it, and I'm sure this is you know never be the case but 
thinking about what it'd be like as a writer and be like, I want to make sure this is an unsolved murder because I read so little in the way of like of crime thrillers that I feel like anything that I'd come up with half like I solved this by page thirty-five. <laughs> <laughs> I I think it's funny. I would have very rarely um read crime and and because my my dad loves it and my sister enjoys it as well i am a big scaredy cat um and i hate like suspense i hate not knowing like i hate feeling anxious you know when i'm reading a book and you know it was interesting a friend said to me a few years ago we were talking about crime and she was trying to get me to read more psychological thrillers i said i don't know if it's really for me and and she made this amazing point and she said that the bad writers in this genre she said use women and women's bodies as tropes or as like a narrative device um and she said the good writers actually are using this genre to interrogate why women feel afraid and what it's like to i think navigate the world in a female body and when she said that you know and she recommended people you know she recommended Megan Abbott and she recommended Erin Kelly, Tana French, Leanne Moriarty and I think it was really I think seeing work by these incredible female writers who who were doing the latter I think um, um, and doing it just spectacularly well actually that I think really was a great introduction um, to this genre and also I think challenged a lot of the assumptions that maybe that I had had about it before um, starting to read those books. That's a really interesting point and I've loved Erin Kelly whenever I've read oh. her and I, everyone else you mentioned I'm like yeah I, I feel like I would like those those writers very much. I suppose going back to what you were saying about Sweet Valley High now more than ever being like what I want is angel delight in a book form but then sometimes there is something really powerful about scaring yourself and understanding uh, my friend um caroline uh corin has got a new book out called the baby group and her book before that was excellent uh through the wall and they're both in that family i think of having really compelling interesting women at their heart leanne moriarty everyone i know loves her i really must yeah. read that and prepare to be <laughs> scared but in a smart way yeah I think I mean I when I started writing after the silence I think I wanted it to be like primarily a psychological thriller but also sort of sneak in a bit of feminism I just thought you know just get it in there um and um I think you and your feminism Louise I know I can't help it I can't help myself um but I think the Anne Moriarty does that really well particularly in um Big Little Lies obviously um which you know is at its heart a uh whodunit but there's such an incredible exploration of domestic violence um, and this very complicated, very like sexual relationship um, and very tempestuous and very passionate. And you can see, I suppose, how confusing that is, um, you know, for uh, the woman at the heart of it um, and how she almost I suppose, believes herself to be complicit in it. Um, it's just very, it's very skillfully done. Oh, I've got so much to read now. I can't wait. I'm sorry. Huge thanks to Louise. After the Silence is out now, and I think we're going to be seeing on a lot of Book of the Year lists. Go forth and read. I'm Daisy Buchanan, and I have been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me. 
Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and it's hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at Booked. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would make me so happy if you left us a five-star review. It's the best way to help new listeners to find the podcast. But now I leave you with this from Jerry Seinfeld. A bookstore is one of the only pieces of evidence we have that people are still thinking. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.